Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, in honor of Delta, we're going to take a break from our planned hashtag zero COVID, and we're going to cover SARS-CoV-2. I'm going to put together all of the clips I've been putting out on the YouTube channel into one episode. And if you want to keep up with all of the content, you're going to have to go to YouTube and subscribe. And I, Prasad, MDMPH, check it out there. And without further ado, this is a special episode. It's in violation of season four rules, but it is in fact, hashtag all COVID, hashtag Delta. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Does the Moderna two-dose vaccination sequence need a booster? Well, the FDA is going to weigh in on that decision in the advisory committee meeting coming later this week. I've had a chance now to read the guidance documentation provided by the FDA for the ongoing discussion, and it is quite interesting. Now, of course, Moderna always had a higher dose than the Pfizer vaccine. The dose in Moderna, 100 micrograms, was 2.3 times as much as the Pfizer dose. Now, Moderna is submitting an EUA for a one-dose booster at 50 micrograms, half the dose of the first two shots. And it is going to go to the advisory committee, and it is going to be quite interesting. They're seeking an EUA in the exact same population, the over 65 or for under 65 if you're at high risk of coming into contact with SARS-CoV-2 or getting really sick from SARS-CoV-2, that population, not everybody. Pfizer couldn't get it and Moderna certainly doesn't even aspire to get it, but it looks like they're looking at the exact same population. And they are submitting data that supposedly makes the case for boosters. What do I think about all this? I looked through the FDA documentation and it smells to me as if reviewers inside the FDA are not so keen on this decision. They're not coming out strongly in favor of this. They seem to be equivocating a bit. Why might that be the case? Well, the Moderna dose was always higher and that meant a few things. One, it goes hand in hand with I should say it goes hand in hand with rather than it means because we don't know necessarily that that's the reason why, but it goes hand in hand with very good vaccine efficacy for bad endpoints, severe disease and hospitalization. Moderna continues to enjoy 90 plus percent protection against those endpoints in real world observational studies for whatever it's worth. Moderna also is coming with a higher rate of myocarditis, particularly in boys between the ages of 12 and 24, which is the highest age group. In the FDA guidance documents, they say that the rate in some data sets is as high as 200 and some change out of a million, which is roughly one in 4,000, which it turns out is a little bit more frequent than some of the most controversial estimates that got people in a lot of trouble. But it looks like this myocarditis is a real safety signal and it is not infrequent. Now, Moderna is seeking EUA for the booster. I have a lot of thoughts here. One, if you want to persuade me that a booster is beneficial, I don't want to see vaccine efficacy data. I don't want to see an increase in the geometric mean titer of antibody. I want to see in a randomized fashion that people who get boosters do better than people who don't get boosters, that they're less likely to get severely ill from SARS-CoV-2. That's the standard in my mind for what justifies a booster, a randomized study that shows people benefit from getting the booster. That's a very fair standard in evidence-based medicine. 
they're not meeting that standard. They are submitting an EUA on the basis of non-inferior geometric mean titers of antibody. All that means is we can boost the antibody titer. But do you actually do better as a result? Or is there anything to improve upon? Is an open question that these results do not yet get into. My next point, the use of EUA. When will the EUA stop? When do we have to go to the formal FDA approval BLA process? Are we going to have EUAs for the third, the fourth, the fifth, the annual booster? How much can you get out of an EUA? Is it truly an emergency for someone who's had two Moderna vaccinations? Are they facing an emergency any, at any age? Is there an emergency going on in that group that the EUA authority is warranted? I think this is an important regulatory question. As someone who studied regulatory systems for many years, published two books on the topic, I struggle to make the case that the EUA authority is warranted here. We've seen in oncology, the accelerated approval pathway, which was meant to do one thing, has been widely used for almost everything in oncology. Is that the future of vaccines and EUA? If so, I have a lot of reasons to be concerned about that. Reading into this packet, I see an FDA staff that, in my opinion, seems reluctant to move forward with this Moderna booster. We shall see what the meeting holds. We've already seen that the director and the deputy director have resigned and they're going to be retiring at the end of uh, the next couple months. This does not bode well. I mean, this is what we were worried about. Um, what is going on at the FDA? How much pressure are these reviewers under to make these booster authorizations go through? Is this the appropriate regulatory pathway? What data do we really need? I struggle with Moderna Booster. I really do. You're talking about a vaccination series of two shots that's got 90 plus percent real world effectiveness data. You can boost the antibodies, sure. It turns out, did you know, the human body doesn't always make all of the antibodies for every antigen you've ever been exposed to. The reason being, if you always made all antibodies for everything you've ever been exposed to in your life, your blood would be as thick as molasses, and we can't have that. We have a system in place, an immune system, that when it needs to, it can rev up the production of these antibodies. Now, that's not an argument that the booster works or doesn't work. It's just another argument for why it might not necessarily confer benefit. And the only way to settle this is a randomized control trial measuring the endpoints you actually care about. I really don't understand why we're not doing it. I am concerned about the process. And well, we shall see. I think, I think this is not gonna go the same way the Pfizer booster went. I mean, there was a lot of political pressure to make that September 20th deadline that the president set out. I don't know where the president got the September 20th deadline from, but they put it out there. And there was a lot of pressure to make sure we had a booster by that week. But now that's happened. And so I think arguably there's less pressure, less eyes on this decision. Maybe it's time to take a pause and think about this a little bit more carefully. I'm somebody who's very interested in regulatory science, and I think it's important to have flexibility in regulatory pathways. When things are really dire, you need flexibility to bring products to market very quickly. I was a big supporter for the original EUA of the Pfizer vaccine. Thought it was spectacular. But at some point, you need to get better and more credible data. You can't continue to use the exigent circumstances that were present in the past, may not be present in the future, to justify a lower regulatory bar. And in fact, the central lesson of both books I've written is that low regulatory standards have a price. They have a price for patients and doctors. They leave us with a lot of uncertainty. So I will be watching 
very closely this Moderna hearing, and I will want to know. And I also want to know about J&J. I really want to know. I have a lot more questions about J&J, like why we're wedded to J&J for people who got J&J, why we are not open to mRNA for people who got J&J. I want an answer to that question, so I'll be following this meeting. These are some of my thoughts on the FDA guidance documents that I have reviewed right now, and I'm giving them to you just as it comes to my mind. Um, this is an exciting and also trepidatious time to be somebody who studies vaccine and drug policy and regulation. It's exciting because finally people are interested in what we're doing, <laughs> interested in these kinds of things, but it gives me some concern because there is so much external pressure on the traditional process. And, uh, you know, it wasn't made for that. It's a process that's great for peacetime. It's not terrific when the eyes of the world are on it and political pressures are on it. So we shall see. Boosters, I'm an old-fashioned doctor. I like randomized control trials measuring endpoints I care about. We shall see what the committee thinks. Until next time. I wanted to say eight things about public policy in times of crisis. I think these are an important eight points that are often overlooked. Number one, behavioral change. When some news of a crisis emerges and that information is spread amongst people, people will naturally change their behavior in response to that information. Now, many things they do might be rational and well-motivated, but other things they do might be based on misinformation or misunderstanding of information or misunderstanding of risk. But whatever it is, as soon as the crisis and that information is disseminated, behavioral change happens. Number two, the media. The media and the way in which they cover a healthcare crisis or any public policy crisis will further change the behavior of people. That the way it's presented, how it is framed, how risk is conveyed to people will further alter the way in which people choose their own fate. And to a large degree, the public policy question here is how might you get the media to do a better job of covering the event? And there are lots of things we could do. We could try to educate reporters about risk and probability, teach them principles of good journalism and good covering. But there's a lot you can't do because you can't control all the ways in which people get information. And so when it comes to behavioral change from media reporting of an event, some of that will be out of the hands of policymakers. Number three, governments make policies. Governments will respond to crisis and they will make policies against or for or to minimize the damage of that crisis, but some of those policies may be a blunder. Number four, is it enforced or is it rewarded? When you make a policy and you want to change the way in which people behave, are you punishing them? If so, how? How do you enforce the policy? Or are you rewarding them for following your policy? And if so, how? What is the reward? But the nature of the enforcement and what happens during the enforcement is all baked into the public policy question. Number five, is it a restriction? Or is it a resource? Restrictions are easy for policymakers to do because they often involve the powers that are already conveyed to policymakers. They involve apparatus that's already present. But resources are often a key factor in changing behavior in a positive way, in a way that is accepted, in a way that is sustained. So whether or not you use restrictions or resources is an important policy consideration. Six, unintended consequences and the net effect. It is easy to believe that what you've done is going to make things better. After all, that's why you did it. But that doesn't mean it is so. And the key fact here is you need to be very cognizant of the predicted 
and known effects, but also the unanticipated effects, the unanticipated consequences. And they can even surprise you. And that's why you need people at the table who may even disagree with your policy to help you keep an eye on those things. Because if you don't have those people at the table, you will fall into your blind spots. You will not see what you don't want to see. And you will just carry through your policy, even if it has a detrimental net effect that you do not fully appreciate. Number seven, new developments. Inevitably, in the course of a crisis, there will be new developments, there'll be new information, there'll be new tools, and how you handle those new developments is a critical mark of a policymaker. One, you want to prove that the new tools that you want to offer are in fact beneficial. It's not enough that they make sense or that it is something to do. You really want to know it's the right thing to do and it truly is beneficial. And in whom is it beneficial? And once you know that, you want to encourage the uptake of it in the target groups. You want to get more people in that group that benefits to do it. But you also don't want to push it so hard in groups where they're not going to get the benefit. And then how are you going to compel the uptake? What tools are you going to use? And again, it comes back to the original principles. Are you going to give carrots or use sticks? Are you going to reward it or are you going to punish? How will you enforce that? What are the unanticipated consequences of the way in which you enforce the new tool? You foster the new tool. And number eight, the last point, the truth about public health and medicine. And the truth, the really, the really tough truth is that a lot of what we think helps, a lot of what is plausible, a lot of what people, even very smart people think must work, often doesn't work. It's often merely seductive in the moment. And human beings are great at letting ourselves believe that our actions and our will can overcome anything. But a lot of the natural world is the way in which it's going to proceed. And what we can do is maybe modestly steer the ship. But to do that, you really need to keep an open mind, to be open to the fact that your policies may in fact be misguided. Some of them may be detrimental. How will you measure that? How will you track that? And if you don't have those systems in place, not only will you be steering the ship in the wrong direction, but you might not know that for a long, long time. Now, these are eight principles of health policy in the time of crisis. It's to remind us that there's so much outside of what we can control, but the things we can control are the top-down, larger policy strategies. And it is not intuitively clear what is the right answer in many cases in policy in the time of crisis. So... These are some very general thoughts about policy in times of crises in general. Until next time. It's been a big week in vaccine news. We have two paired papers in the New England Journal of Medicine about myocarditis. We have Swedish reports and Denmark reports that they are no longer going to be offering the Moderna vaccine to people under the age of 30. What does this all mean? Well... As many of you all know, I've been interested in following very closely the mRNA myocarditis saga. I have had my eye on it for quite some time and published a number of op-eds and commentaries on this topic. So naturally, I'm going to be interested in the developments of this week. What should I tell you? First, let's back up and let's review what's been going on. Um, I think some of us were first aware of the signal that mRNA vaccination particularly in boys and particularly of a certain age, between the age of, say, 12 and 28, um, or 12 and 30, 
that there was a safety signal there. And that safety signal was myocarditis. Um, the initial reports came out in early February in uh, Israeli news coverage. It was corroborated by Reuters in April. By May, the EMA had launched an inquiry. That was around the time that Wes Pegden, myself, and Steph Brawl wrote about the use of emergency use authorization in younger age groups for the British Medical Journal. Uh, and into the summer, when I, with several co-authors, wrote a provocative piece um, that the CDC should consider alternative dosing strategies particularly for boys, particularly for this age group where there is a vulnerability to myocarditis, um, we suggested that they consider a one-dose strategy. Well, fast forward, now we have seen the United Kingdom, Hong Kong, Norway have in fact considered this one-dose strategy and have moved forward with one dose out of the risk of myocarditis. Just this week we learned Sweden and Denmark were no longer recommending one of the two mRNA vaccines, the Moderna vaccine, to people under the age of 30 out of risk of myocarditis. It appears in a number of data sets that the Moderna vaccination has a slightly higher risk of that adverse outcome. And I think... <clears throat> And the biggest bombshell this week are the two Israeli studies and a New York Times article that has finally allowed us to talk more openly about this. This is by uh, Apoor Vamandvi, and it has quotes from Waleed Jalad. Um, and I think they're good quotes about why we need to be open and able to discuss whether or not a two-dose strategy is the optimum strategy in this age group or whether or not a one-dose strategy might give you most of the benefit of vaccination but mitigate a large percentage of the downside. So what are my thoughts here? I have several thoughts. <clears throat> One, I think um, vaccination is an important good. And I've said that on many shows. And I particularly think that's important for older people. And I myself rushed to get myself vaccinated. At the same time, I think it's important not to let that enthusiasm come at the price of a total lack of critical thinking. Even if something is good, it doesn't mean you cannot keep an eye on adverse effects that may come down the pipe. And I think we did face a huge reluctance to have an honest discussion about myocarditis. Some people felt like even acknowledging it might be a threat to vaccination. I think that is misguided. And if anything, it creates a sense of distrust and is, a, is, a, is just a bad thing to do as a scientist. Um, we followed this for quite some time uh, before I actually commented publicly about it in the summer of this year, where I thought it is a real safety concern. One of the reports out of Israel shows that uh, at least one boy um, who has myocarditis got very, very sick. And uh, some boys have uh, some uh, changes on MRI of their heart. I think it is important to acknowledge that we do not fully know all of the long-term implications for those cardiac changes in some subset of kids with myocarditis. Uh, could some subset have some long-term deleterious impact? That is an important and open scientific question. We should not minimize that scientific question. And I think so that's been one important part of the narrative. The next part is the actual frequency of this event. Now, many of you all know I have been following all of the studies, including the preprint by John Mandrola, Tracy Beth Hogg, Ali Krug, Josh Stevenson, which suggested that the incidence was something around one in 6,800 or so in the age group of 12 to 15, uh, perhaps one in 7,000-ish. That was the ballpark that they were in. That figure appears to be firmly corroborated by the Fi Pfizer data in the New England Journal of this week. Uh, that is, in fact, the number. It's very, very close. The real rate of this incidence in, in this age group of boys is something between one in 6,000, one in 10,000-ish. That's the ballpark. Now, of course, um, different studies will have different point estimates, but that's a reasonable ballpark. So I again say that um, 
They were wrongly impugned. They were heavily criticized for their VAERS analysis, which I believe did not inappropriately use VAERS. It appropriately uses VAERS because it was reviewed by an expert cardiologist, John Mandrola. And now I think they have been fully and completely vindicated that their estimate was very, very close to multiple converging estimates from multiple different systems. And I think it was unfair, their treatment, and profoundly anti-science, in my opinion, um, to to have criticized them so vociferously, predominantly because you didn't want to accept their conclusion that fell alongside many other studies. One of the other things that came out in this New England Journal publication is that some kids are getting quite sick. You know, this is um, an idiosyncratic adverse event. And when people say that most cases are mostly mild, of course that would be true. I mean, that can easily be true. But that's not the same as saying all cases are guaranteed to be mild. Um, that's a fundamentally different claim. And idiosyncratic adverse events will have some distribution of severity. And some will, by chance alone, when the denominator gets big enough, be quite concerning. And you have to take that very seriously. And the reason this discussion is so important is because the age gradient of harm of this virus is so, so steep. It is so, so bad to have an unvaccinated 70-year-old person. That is very, very, very dangerous to that person. Um, I am fearful for that person. And globally, there are many such people, and I would do anything to get them vaccine very quickly. As you fall down in age and as you deal with a real safety signal, you really need to have a very sober appraisal of the risks and benefits. And I think there's a lot of advantages to the one-dose strategy that many European nations have embodied. In fact, I thought that as early as June of this year when we wrote our MedPage commentary, which blew up a little bit on social media, but was very prescient and ahead of its time uh, in terms of analyzing this question. I think the other point I want to make about this is we, we are in a troublesome spot in science, I think, because it is not diminishing an accomplishment to talk about adverse effects. It is not. It really isn't. And it is not making people reluctant to vaccinate by talking about a real safety signal that might change your strategy. If anything, not talking about it makes people a little reluctant. When the initial reaction to VIT after J&J vaccine was to downplay it and to compare it to blood clot in the leg, we did a huge disservice to the public because a blood clot in the cerebral sinuses in the setting of runaway platelet activation is not the same as a blood clot in the leg. It never was, and everyone knew that all along. So why was that the instinctual reaction of so much of social media and the media, I think, is a problem. Um, here, myocarditis in this age group for boys uh, is, is not something to be ignored. It is something to take very, very seriously, and I have tried to do so in, across all our writings and our analysis. Um, so what did I learn this week? I learned that uh, other nations have suspended Moderna, which has a much higher rate, uh, possibly two times as high, um, than Pfizer. I have seen, finally, in the mainstream media in the United States, an acknowledgement that other nations are pursuing a one-dose strategy. And we now have an estimate, a very good estimate, in a New England Journal publication that is largely compatible with prior estimates, including the paper by Mandrola and colleagues. Um, there's another paper 
from Ottawa that has been retracted. And I want to say something. People have difficulty keeping straight John Mandrola and Tracy Beth Hogg's paper, the Ottawa paper, the Ontario analysis. If you don't know the difference between these analyses, you shouldn't go around talking about which paper has been retracted because I see a lot of errors um, among people who are concerned about misinformation, ironically producing misinformation. Um, The last thing I would say, the mandates. Uh, America is a strange place, you know, it's a strange place where you, one day, you don't have an emergency use authorization, and the next day, you're keen on having a mandate, and there's a lot of space in between authorizing an option and mandating it for everybody, and I had a paper out um, in uh, Newsweek where I argued that LA's two-dose mandate so that kids could go to public school is problematic. And it really is problematic. And if we are going to do mandates, which I want to be a little bit agnostic on this question, uh, it's not my purview, uh, I, I do think at a minimum, let's have some sensibility around the mandate structure. So does it have to mandate two doses for boys between the ages of 12 and 28? I think that's very problematic when our peer nations are not even recommending the second dose to mandate it as a precondition to go to school. And I wrote about this in Newsweek. Um, does it have to be given in a certain time span? Many of these mandates, you have to give it in a certain period of time uh, where other nations are trying longer dosing strategies to minimize the risk of myocarditis. Um, This is a dangerous precedent. Uh, If you're going to use these powerful forces, of which I have some questions about, uh, I certainly think you shouldn't use it in the place where there is not a global scientific consensus. And this is that place. Um, This is a live issue. The last thing I would say. I think one of the reasons why so many commenters got this issue wrong, and we're just on the wrong side of history here. Um, You know, people have deleted their tweets where they said myocarditis after vaccination is not a thing. And they have tried to minimize the fact that they downplayed it or poo-pooed it or said it wasn't going to materialize or be a real concern. I think one of the reasons they got it wrong was that their mindset and worldview that vaccines are a, a, a tremendous good, which they are was developed in a world where we had a lot of vaccines for quite some period of time and we had a lot of comfort around it. Suddenly enter novel virus, novel vaccine, a lot of uncertainty. Um, They took their old worldview and carried it forward but didn't realize you need a new worldview, which is open-mindedness, which is that it can be a tremendous good for a lot of people. In fact, the key, I think, to getting past this pandemic is vaccination. But at the same time, that for some ages, we might benefit from some fine-tuning. And that's not such a provocative idea. That's, that's usual medicine. Um, but that idea was found to be, I think, quite difficult for many people to process. So I view this, I view these events of this week to be um, a big step forward. They're not a big step forward scientifically because I didn't learn a lot of things I didn't already know. But they're a big step forward culturally because people are now able to talk about this more openly. We finally see mainstream media coverage that other nations are not doing uh, two-dose strategy. Um, I've also seen some mainstream media coverage around other nations' masking policies, which is something that I've been trying to get out there. Um, The moment we start to acknowledge that there are other nations full of very smart, thoughtful, caring physicians looking at these data, reaching different conclusions, the better we can be to have an honest and open dialogue of what we ought to do and what's best for 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 kids of this age. So, until next time.
I want to talk about my new Substack post. It's entitled How Democracy Ends, Why COVID-19 Provides a Roadmap to the End of America. This is something I've written. It's on my Substack feed. Check it out there. But let me walk you through the central argument. The central argument is over the last 18 months, many Western democratic nations have done things we've never done before. We've suspended freedom of movement. We've instituted passports to keep track of your whereabouts. They've been apps installed on phones. There has been military presence in the streets like in Australia. And this article imagines what might happen in a future America over the course of the next five or 10 years where democratic norms fall out of favor. The first thing I'll say is that other people have commented and they say, well, there are other scenarios by which democracy can end. And I don't discount that. Of course, there are many scenarios by which democracy can end. Here I'm offering just one scenario based on the events of the last 18 months. What do I describe in this, in this substack? I talk about a typical cold and flu season. In a typical flu season, 40 to 60,000 people will die. As the population of America gets bigger, the flu season will probably have more casualties. So it is not unthinkable in the next 10 years that there will be a cold and flu season that is a little bit above average with 80,000 to 100,000 deaths. That will be a terrible thing, but it is likely quite possible. An unscrupulous politician may seize this as an opportunity. 100,000 deaths is more than average, and there may be a room to sort of institute um, brute force methods to control this. So what might happen? Imagine this 100,000 death flu season. There's going to be some hospital, some pocket in America, some region where a lot of cases all present at once. That's just the nature of respiratory viruses. It's a stochastic event. There'll be some place where a lot of people present at once. And there'll be hospitals that at best of times operate ICUs on the higher capacity side. And when they are hit with a deluge of flu patients, they will be overcrowding. They may even be overflow into other units. So they will be overwhelmed with this flu. And they will be sympathetic stories that the media can extol. They'll be teenagers, they'll be young kids who become very sick with the flu. And we do not want that, but some may even pass away. And so this, this politician in Washington may see this happening and see an opportunity. And that opportunity will be to instruct the governor of the state to issue a shelter in place warning. After all, that's what we should have done with SARS-CoV-2 earlier, they might say. They might say, that's what you asked me to do. In fact, many people on, on, on one political side have pushed for stronger restrictions. And so they will say, we'll have a shelter in place. We cannot tolerate the greater loss of life. And what might happen after that? The governor may implement it. They may have a shelter in place. This is something that we hadn't had in the past flu seasons, but we may have in the future. And there may still be flu patients presenting. It may be difficult to know the exact denominator and the exact numerator, but hospitals and even more hospitals, even more units may become overwhelmed with a prolonged hospitalization on the vent. There may be vent shortages in some counties. And this political leader will say, well, that's not enough. We haven't yet done enough. We're going to ask all the residents, they must be cheating, to install an app on their phone that tracks their movements, tracks their whereabouts. We cannot have greater casualties with the flu. And this may be an attempt for another two weeks. We'll try and see what happens. And of course, cases may still rise. That's the nature of respiratory viruses, despite these efforts. Or there may be another pocket slightly nearby that has an increase in cases. This leader might say, <clears throat> this is not working. We are failing, and so we need to step it up a notch. We need to put the military in the street. And in fact, that's what happened in Australia. The military presence was used to enforce lockdowns and shutdowns. And that may be what happens in this country. They'll say, we'll send in the National Guard. We'll partner with the, the governor, but we will put the military in the streets. And then the last piece of the puzzle, the media will continue to cover this, but there will inevitably be some opposition. There'll be some people who say, you know, just how bad is this? Is this really atypical? Is this within realm of normalcy? What about other hospitals that aren't overwhelmed? And this leader can say, 
you know what? We're going to have to censor all that speech. That speech is dangerous. It leads to death. It leads to people not taking this seriously. It's misinformation. And so we're going to move into social media offices and we're going to shut down these speakers. We're not going to allow this kind of speech. And in fact, you asked for it. You asked for it the last time. You wanted us to do more of this and now we're going to do it. You wanted more shutdowns. You wanted more censoring. We're giving you what you want. And then finally, the elections. The elections may near and the future leader may say, you know what, the Constitution prohibits me from moving the date of the presidential election, but it doesn't specify how the electors are chosen. And I'm going to ask the governors to make an exemption and change the way we picked electors and not do a direct popular vote this year. It's too risky. And in fact, we're just going to have to go with electors that are handpicked. They're going to pick me. This is a scenario of events that might possibly happen. I'm not saying it will happen. I'm just saying it's not out of the realm of possibility. And every piece of this puzzle, every step along the way has been paved by our attitudes towards these policies. One, strong force, including military force, has been deployed in other nations, including Australia. And there have been calls for stronger force to have been applied in this country. Two, the public has accepted severe restrictions on movement, on on travel, on border closures. We've accepted that in the past. Um, and some have even said that greater restrictions should have been applied. Three, the media. The media has never been good at portraying risk as a numerical quantity and comparing it to other risks. They're much better at giving you anecdotes to have a gut feeling of risk. But anecdotes can be misleading. And of course, in any above average flu season, you can have very powerful anecdotes. In fact, in any below average flu season, you can have powerful anecdotes showing how bad the flu is. The rise of social media corporations has led to a few places where most speech, most dialogue is happening, and those places can be regulated or taken over. Five, America is increasingly comfortable with regulating speech. We didn't see this among people on the progressive left 20 years ago, but now we see a strong appetite to regulate speech that is thought to be harmful to the public health. And the sixth point, I think, is that the idea of safety as a virtue above all other virtues dominates the consciousness now. We think safety is the greatest virtue in life. It is the safetyism movement that we've seen over the last 20 years. And that means that you can do unprecedented things to liberty in pursuit of a greater virtue, safety. And finally, point seven, it's the party that asked for doing more that is more vulnerable to take over from the other party. Whatever nation you're in, if there were two political parties and one party wanted more restrictions, more curtailments, more prohibitions, and the other party didn't, it's that party that didn't that can leverage this in the future and, and provide it as a basis of taking over. They can say, you were the ones who wanted this. We're giving you what you want and use it in a nefarious way. So the purpose of my Substack post is not to say this is what's going to happen. It's not to say this is the only end to democracy, which is what some people have said. It's not that. It's to say that we have allowed a number of precedents in place that make us extremely vulnerable to this sort of seizing of power. The use of something out there that will provide a real risk, but that risk will be distorted, it will be told in anecdotes rather than numerical, and it will warrant a severe restriction on freedom, on movement, and on communication. And once those three pillars are, are cut out from under you, uh, the potential to lose democratic norms is very high. And the one thing I point out is that this may seem so unthinkable, but of course, in the 1920s in Germany, it was a democratically elected place. And it was a series of events detailed in a number of elegant World War II books that led to the rise of totalitarianism. It's not out of the question that simple events, serendipity, opportunity lead to the end of democratic norms. I guess I'm concerned about this. 
I'm concerned that we have not had an honest discussion about what limits, if any, need to exist, what checks and balances need to exist as we pursue public health, which I believe is incredibly important, but as we balance that with the potential for misuse and abuse and political preferences and power usurping the public goal and the public benefit. And I think I think uh, we're as vulnerable as we've ever been based on what's happened. So I encourage you to check out, linked below, my Substack post. Until next time. I want to talk about my new Substack column. It's entitled, Progressivism is Dead, COVID-19 Killed It. Now, if you have followed me for many years and you've read both my books, so I'm talking to all three of you, Ending Medical Reversal and Malignant, you will know that I am in fact, and most of my adult life, I have been a progressive. By progressive, I mean I'm somebody who identifies on the political left, perhaps even the far left. And what do I mean by progressive? To me, a progressive is someone who believes that government, its actions, its incentives, its regulation can be structured in a way that empowers average everyday people, that improves the lives of all of us. And that's to me what progressivism means. And there are several values that come with a progressive platform that I believe are important. I'm gonna talk about in this video. But I also believe COVID-19 threw us for a loop. And people who I was closest with, who were fellow progressives, have abandoned the progressive cause and their mind is filled with madness. They have gone the other direction. They're promoting policies that make no sense, that are antithetical to what we believe. So let me outline the four things in this Substack post that I wrote on this topic. One, progressives believe in freedom of speech. They believe in freedom of ideas. Two, a progressive society is judged not by how it treats the richest amongst us, but by how much it protects and how well it treats the poorest amongst us. Three, the problems in society are not the products of individual failures, of individual actions. They're the products of structures, of entrenched policies that can be fixed and corrected so that we have better outcomes. And four, tolerance and compassion are key values of progressive philosophy. We are tolerant and compassionate people to how people want to live their lives. So what has COVID-19 done to us? COVID-19 has flipped all the progressive values on its head. Let's talk about freedom of speech and expression. The calls to censor opinions and scientific viewpoints that one disagrees with are most vociferous and passionate on the political left. They're unrecognizable to me in the way in which they wish to censor. Two, society judged by how it protects the poorest among us. I don't see that in their policies. Prolonged shutdown, sheltering the Zoom class of worker, closing schools, the greatest public health fiasco of 20 years, which will disproportionately hurt poorer and minority students. These were all ideas that were embraced by left of center cities, by strong teachers union cities. And it appears to me that many of them were motivated simply in opposition to Donald Trump, not out of any real philosophy. And in fact, public opinion data by Vlad Kogan in a paper in AEI shows that that is the case. Three structures. Progressives are supposed to be <clears throat> thinking about the structures of society. They're supposed to be thinking about the ways in which our entrenched views and bubbles and systems lead to bad outcomes. But instead, what we saw from the progressive side was constant shame and blame. Pre-vaccine, it were the libertines. It were the people who were out there gallivanting that was responsible for all the virus. Post-vaccine, it's those unvaccinated people. Those unvaccinated people for compassion and tolerance. I've never seen it disappear the way I've seen it disappear. I saw today on Twitter, people celebrating the firing of nursing and police officers who declined to get vaccination. Some of these people who are being fired today for not getting vaccines were people who worked in March 2020, in April 2020, in hotspots around this country taking care of COVID-19 patients. 
They have people who sacrificed. They're blue-collar people. They're people who earn a living wage. They're people who are working middle-class people. And we're celebrating that they're being fired. Getting fired in America is a death sentence on your life. You may lose your health insurance. You may lose your livelihood. It has tremendous social implications. What's happened to progressives that we celebrate this? We have mandates in LA County, schools. And if kids don't get two shots and they don't get it fast enough together, no matter what the risk of myocarditis is, they are thrown out of school. Is that a progressive ideology? That to me is one of the most regressive ideologies. And I have a piece out on that at US News and World Report right now. So I guess I'm deeply concerned with what progressivism means. And as somebody who was invested, who is invested, I hope still in the progressive cause, I see total abdication of progressive values from my fellow progressives. They have forgotten what it means. They are some of the people who have wanted to shield the richest amongst us the most. They're some of the people who pushed for the most draconian restrictions and policies. They're pushing for blunt force and strong arm tactics to achieve vaccination. They haven't articulated their goals. Uh, I believe we are in dire straits. So what's the point I want to make here? I think we need a serious realignment if we're to come back from this. We need a realignment and to rethink what are our values, what are our goals, and then what policies facilitate that goal. We cannot be responsive to politicians that we may dislike on the other side. Sometimes those politicians say things that are right, like you ought to open schools. I don't know if we're going to come back from this, and I'm deeply afraid of where we will be. And that is, in fact, the theme of my Substack, which you should subscribe to. And if you like this video, like, subscribe, leave a comment. But those are my thoughts. COVID-19, it killed progressivism. It put us to the test and we were unable to withstand it. We, in fact, became quite regressive, perhaps out of fear, perhaps out of anxiety. Until next time. I want to talk about something meta in the COVID narrative, and that's whether or not platforms like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter should censor scientific information or scientific discussion. This has become a thorny issue. This is an issue that divides many people. This is an issue that attitudes in my own group of people, which are biomedical scientists, is quite divided. And I wanna talk a little bit about some of the issues here. The first thing I have to say is I have to admit that in the time I've been in biomedicine, attitudes on this issue have changed dramatically. I remember starting medical school in 2005, and I will promise you back then, the appetite to censor opinions we disagree with, even opinions we thought would lead to harmful actions, that appetite was very low. We didn't really think that was an acceptable course of action. There were spirited debates around issues like mammography and PSA screening, and both sides thought the other side was harming or killing or hurting or maiming the other uh, many healthy people. If you thought mammography shouldn't be done, you thought it was a detriment to those women, you thought the other side was hurting them, and vice versa. If you thought mammography should be done, was life-saving, you thought the other side was hurting them. But there was never this appetite to say, because that could be a harmful view. We need to expunge it from the record. You wanted to rebut them. You wanted to correct them. You wanted to maybe even drown them out. But you didn't want to remove their words from the world. I think that's a novel concept. But it has emerged in this pandemic, this idea whether or not we ought to censor, when should we censor. And I do think there is some reason why this might be a little bit different. The decisions we're making right now, the magnitude and stake of those decisions, the beliefs we hold, they have implications not only for our own lives, but the lives of many other people. If we're wrong about something, if we promote a wrong narrative, we can hurt many thousands of people, maybe even millions of people. <clears throat> so that I think is like the prima facie reason why we ought to consider this differently. But I think there's some challenges when it comes to these kinds of platform censoring, and I wanna walk you through those, those challenges. One challenge, 
as you do science, you learn a lot of things. You learn, first off, how to read science. How do you read it? And then as you get better at it, how do you read it more, more clearly? How do you really tease apart science that is true and useful from science that is noise and part of that endless chasing of CV? Then you start doing science and you start publishing science and you learn a lot of things. You learn, how do you write an abstract? How do you write a paper? How do you format a paper? How do you think about a scientific thought? How do you present your research findings? How do you probe a question? What questions are worth probing? Many, many such things I talk to a lot about with my team of researchers. And then the last thing, the toughest thing about science that only comes with a lot of experience and a lot of time in the field is what kind of debates are acceptable? What kind of views are within the canon of reasonable discourse? What should an editor have as a pro-con piece? And what debates are so nonsensical that one side really doesn't have standing? And that comes with a lot of experience and a lot of time. And I think reasonable people can disagree about that. But I don't think anyone just entering the scientific field can immediately have the right answer on that in all the cases. And I think reasonable people will legitimately disagree. Why do I say that? When it comes to censoring points of view or censoring ideas, I think you're in that last tier. You're in the toughest tier of science there is. Having experience, having done papers, having published, being a PhD student, being an MD student, that's just not enough to really know what that arena is like. Have you lived long enough in science where you've seen debates topple, where you've seen that mammographic debate? And I've seen it from 2005 to the present day. And 2005, to even suggest that there may be women who suffer from overdiagnosis, that was a very heretical thought. There were a lot of people who were against some of the popular proponents of that, like Barry Kramer, like Gil Welsh. Um, they argued against them vehemently. Now, of course, those ideas are very much mainstream in biomedicine. It is the norm to think there's overdiagnosis, and proponents believe that the net benefit of mammography outweighs that. But I think that ability to have that dialogue is a lot different than it was. <clears throat> I've lived through these debates on Human Genome Project, on, on cancer screening, on, on cancer drugs, uh, so many of these debates. And I've seen the arc um, by which ideas that were once thought to be deviations from what you ought to think later become the obvious, the obvious idea that everyone should have thought about all along. Um, the same person who said, you know, genome drugs benefit most cancer patients after a debate where we show that it in fact benefits a minority of cancer patients. They act as if they believe that all along. Uh, that's an easy way to save your ego in the face of evidence that runs contrary to views. And it's a common thing that happens in science over many, many years. What does this have to do with censoring? <clears throat> I think we have to be honest that the people who are calling for the censoring, the people who are doing the censoring, they're not the people who have spent long enough time in the scientific business to know what debates you ought to let go and what debates you might want to curtail. They don't have that sort of long, arc that experience on these issues. They often are very junior people who are hired by these technology companies who mean well, whose heart's in the right place, who may be activists on a number of social political issues, but who really don't have that experience to know where do you draw the line. I admit, I admit, you know, I listen to things and I hear things that I think are just totally wrong and false. And it's easy to point to things that are totally wrong and false. What is hard is to draw the line between what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. And that's what censoring has to do. It has to draw the line. And there are these huge reports out by the Surgeon General about censoring. You can read that whole report. And the one thing you won't find is a robust definition of what is censoring, of what is misinformation, of where is the line between reasonable dialogue and reasonable debate, and it's gone too far. They can't enunciate that line. That line is very difficult. It's unlikely that 10 people will have the same line even 10 very experienced people. The next thing that concerns me, 
many of the people who see themselves as the misinformation police. <clears throat> they really just have a point of view that is an entrenched uh, scientific, science-y point of view that kind of dovetails with politics. They have a certain politics. They have a certain point of view. They talk about it a lot on social media. Um, they believe they are the agents of good, that they are the ones who can police the misinformation. But they themselves so easily succumb to viral clickbait articles that are just patently untrue. They so easily succumb to rumors about others that are just incorrect or false. They themselves show a vulnerability to misinformation, and these are the people who are most ardent about policing misinformation. There's also the double standard. Observational studies are not really good at assessing causality, but the same person who would say that these observational studies, they don't prove ivermectin works, and by the way, I agree, they do not, and uh, I've said many times I don't advise that off protocol. I advise it to be done on randomized studies. But they'll happily accept those observational studies if they prove that, prove, quote unquote, that masks work in very young kids in daycare and in elementary schools. But it has the same flaw in both examples. They're not having a consistent evidence framework. So what am I to think when these agents are vociferous and passionate about censoring uh, without being able to demarcate what is acceptable dialogue and acceptable debate versus unacceptable debate. I think it is an internally inconsistent position. It is a position that's easy to hold if you yourself find yourself in the majority mob, but is a position that you will quickly relinquish when you find yourself outside that majority position. It's a position you will quickly relinquish when you think about the broad arc of scientific discussions and debates. When you think about all those debates that we needed to have, the really shifted points of view, that people in retrospect don't even see that, you only know it if you lived it. When you see that, you recognize that having a broad forum for scientific debate is probably the best idea. And Facebook and Twitter and these kinds of companies, they cannot, they're not really positioned to do this kind of refereeing. Universities are better positioned and they do it to some degree through the elaborate process by which they hire faculty and decide who to promote and who to keep. They do it to some degree in terms of the conferences they hold and don't hold. But <clears throat> even they are very careful to amplify some things and, and not curtail other things. But I will argue that actually they have done a disservice and if anything have been too close-minded and are increasingly capitulating to the social media uh, mentality. Um, this is a thorny issue, um, but I will go further and I will argue that I think that the worst entity to do it would be for these tech companies to hire people just out of PhD postdoc who um, didn't get faculty positions, who didn't get other opportunities, um, and ask them to referee these debates. I don't think they're well positioned to do it. I don't think they're the ideal demographic. Would it be better if they just recruited the deans of universities in, from the past? Perhaps. But I suspect in that age group, with people with that experience, their attitude towards censorship will be different than the attitude among the young. I'm a little troubled that this attitude has shifted so dramatically. To me, science has always meant trying to build the case for your point of view, going with the evidence where the evidence takes you, and if the evidence refutes your point of view, refining your position. But that is difficult in a world where we have to always say the quote-unquote right policy proscription from day one. That's untenable. It is natural, it is inevitable that when you have policy proscriptions that you've never had in a thousand years, like shutting down the world, that reasonable and smart people are gonna disagree for legitimate reasons. And the more you try to curtail that, you get into problems. Last thing I'll say, lab leak. Lab leak is an example where you really, you screwed up so badly. The society and science, we screwed it up. And I, and I will tell you right now, I'm not an expert on the topic. I don't know if it, if it was lab leak or not. 
If I had to bet, I'd make my bet, but you know, I don't know the answer. But um, what I will say, it is, uh, it is unconscionable that you could not discuss that for four months on Facebook. It is unconscionable that people labeled any discussion of the origin of the virus as quote unquote racist. It is unconscionable that we were unable to have that dialogue and we needed Don McNeil and Nick Wade to write those Medium articles to unlock that discussion. That's unconscionable. That's untenable. A free society cannot have that level of restriction on speech. And so, you know, you may have a system where you censor things that are incorrect and you may correctly censor 999 out of a thousand things. I don't think you're that good yet, but you even get to that rate. But that one thing that you're censoring inappropriately, that might be something super important that we need to flesh out as a society. So I think censoring science, <clears throat> it's a bad proposition. I don't think good things come from it. And I think that it reveals a lack of historical understanding of science and the way in which these debates have unfolded over many years. And I guess those are just some thoughts on this topic. Until next time. The CDC is back. They got paired papers in MMWR that claim to show what we've all been waiting for. Mandatory masking policies within schools works. 100% it works. Well, based on these observational studies, that's what the authors would have you believe. But these observational studies have a number of limitations, a number of caveats, and I've described some of them on my Substack, which you should check out if you haven't already. But I want to talk about them a little bit more here. I want to also talk about a New York Times op-ed by the authors of the Bangladesh Cluster Randomized Trial. Now, what are the points I want to make? Here's a few points. When there are policy decisions that you make that you don't know the answer to, there are ways to get at the answer. And probably the best way for most policy decisions, particularly decisions around NPIs, is a cluster randomized control trial. That's where you take a big group of people who really don't know the answer and you break them out into clusters. That could be classrooms, it could be schools, it could be small little regions. And you assign one of those pockets, one strategy, and the other pocket not to do that strategy or a different strategy. and you you expand that to all the different groups you got. And so suddenly you're capable of answering interesting questions. And that's literally what they did in Bangladesh, which we'll come to. They randomized those groups, those villages, to cloth masking, to surgical masking, or to no masking at all. That's very, very useful. Now, finally, they're able to separate the effect of the masking from all the other things that may make a group of people want to mask. Now, it turns out, I don't know if you know this, but brace yourself. Masking school kids is kind of controversial in this country. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know if you knew that, but it's kind of controversial. And it has taken on a political valence. People in left-leaning and blue states, they like to do it. And people in right-leaning and red states, they don't like to do it. They don't like those mandates. And they're more likely to say this is unproven. And these people are more likely to say we know for sure it works. So it's got this left-right dimension. It turns out that politics has also infiltrated other aspects of SARS-CoV-2. The people over here may be more likely to do a whole bunch of other things to keep themselves from getting the virus. And the people over here may be less likely to do those other things and more likely to do other activities that they feel are salutatory. So there are some differences here. Enter the two CDC studies. One study takes place in Maricopa County and Pima County, Arizona. And those are both places that um, are politically divided. Pima County, of course, voted more strongly in favor of Joe Biden. Maricopa was kind of split this time between Trump and Biden. And uh, they looked to see what happened to the schools there. <clears throat> and it turns out that the schools in these counties that implemented mask policies were less likely to have two or more cases in the school than schools that didn't implement the mandatory mask policy. 
Now, what about did the mandatory mask policy slow the total number of cases? Oh, we don't know the answer to that question, actually. Don't know the answer to that question because the study doesn't actually report the number of cases in these schools. Well, were the schools with mandatory mask policies the same as the schools without mandatory mask policies? Well, they were smaller and more likely to be elementary school, and they were more likely to be in Pima County and not in Maricopa County. But other than that, they were really rather different than the schools that didn't implement the policy. And if you look at that, and you look at two or more cases, then there's a 3.5 odds ratio or fold reduction in the risk of two or more cases if you were in the mask mandate group versus the group that didn't have the mask mandate. So what am I to take from this? I take what I generally take from these kinds of studies, which is I have absolutely no clue. These are different schools than these schools, and that these different schools had fewer two or more cases, although I don't actually know the raw numbers of cases. And if a school is bigger, well, I would think statistically, even at the same rate of having cases, they're more likely to be two cases. And those bigger schools are in, are in this hand over here, the ones without the mask mandates. The other thing they don't adjust for is the rates of vaccination among teachers and students. They don't adjust for a continual adjustment for the population transmission in that area. That's kind of a problem. The paired paper in the MMWR looked at all the counties in America and they divide them into counties with strong school masking policies, like you gotta do it always, and counties where there is a strong no masking policy. You don't gotta do it, and if you don't wanna do it. And it turns out only 16% of schools are in those two buckets. Most schools, 84%, are in some mixed district where some people do it, some people mandate it, some people don't. And if you compare these two districts, you start to see that the change in cases after school starts was different. What are the raw numbers of cases? Can you adjust it for pediatric and teacher vaccination? Well, they didn't do any of those things. <clears throat> the bigger problem here is that these kinds of studies are very similar to the studies that we dismiss for ivermectin, for hydroxychloroquine. These are really confounded observational studies. The people doing one thing are very different than the people who don't do the other thing. They're not really useful for causal conclusions in policy. What am I to think when many people on Twitter start to retweet these studies? When many people say these studies prove what we've known all along, what am I to think? The only thing I can think is that people are very, very biased. They have a double standard. If they wanted something to work, they will extol the worst data imaginable. And if they don't want it to work, they won't accept the best data imaginable. Let's talk about the cluster randomized trial in Bangladesh. This is a randomized trial. It's a cluster randomized trial. It's a good study. It's really good. It does give us important information. Does that information apply to the U.S. now? Does it apply to schools? I think not. We're not Bangladesh when the study was run. When the study was run in rural Bangladesh, Bangladesh essentially had no vaccination and no seroprevalence at baseline. We're a little bit different in the United States. I don't know if you know this. We have high vaccination. 65% of people have gotten one shot. Some places it's really high, like San Francisco. And natural immunity, we don't know for sure, but different studies put it in the 20% ballpark. So we're not the same as Bangladesh when this study was run. But nevertheless, when the study was run, they found that uh, places that instituted surgical masks had a lower rate of spread. That's good. But places that instituted cloth masks, they had no reduction in spread over the control arm of no masks. Cloth masks fail, surgical masks win in Bangladesh in these settings. That's good to know. That's very important information. But what does the op-ed state? The op-ed states that <clears throat> any mask is better than no mask. That's not what your study showed. That's kind of a misinterpretation of your study. It's kind of misinformation. 
It's kind of not true. That's not what your study said. It didn't say any mask was better than no mask. It said one mask won, and the other mask was, in fact, not better than no mask by your own primary endpoint. So why are you saying that? The authors of this op-ed also write that if we did this now in the United States right now, we'd save so many lives. Well, that would be if the effect size directly translated to the United States right now. It does not. Why does it not? Because it's a very different time and place than when you ran your study. So what am I to think? We allow so many things in science that are just patently incorrect. Both of these studies that don't prove causality, this op-ed that's saying things that are just not true, not shown by the evidence, but it's unidirectional. It's only if that's the prevailing wisdom, you get away with it. You try to say anything that goes against the grain, you're gonna be fact-checked four times. I happen to know something about that. So these are my thoughts on these studies. They don't actually prove what they claim to be showing. Um, they are kind of, you know, the kinds of studies that get done that I wish we had fewer of. Um, and what's more emblematic to me is all the ways in which the tweets and retweets and likes have been weaponized. This topic is really, it's in a bad place. Like, I don't know how many scientists are left on this topic. There are a lot of partisans who feel very strongly that they know the answer. And there's like six people who are willing to admit like we didn't run a whole lot of cluster trials that we should have. And uh, it's kind of a sad state for science. So those are my thoughts on these two studies. Check out the Substack. A lot more writing in there for you. Until next time. Follow the science. It's a popular slogan, and it's also one of the great lies of this pandemic. Now, many months ago, I wrote an article on follow the science. I'm gonna put the link down below. But here I'm gonna talk a little bit about why follow the science was always an incoherent policy proposal. It could never guide us. It was always wrong, and that statement is fundamentally misleading. And I was reminded about this by reading an article in The Atlantic, which I'll also put the link to below, which echoes many of my thoughts and themes from my article from a few months ago. Now, why is follow the science insufficient for policy making? Well, it's not that science has nothing to tell us. Science is an extremely valuable tool. And science can help you articulate the trade-offs. It can help you figure out if you did this, what are the pros and what are the cons and what are the magnitudes of those pros and cons? And if you did that, what are the pros and the cons and what are the magnitudes of that? But it can't answer the question of what you ought to do. What you ought to do is always and only answerable by the general public, by people, who themselves can ascribe value to different things. Science can just delineate trade-offs, but it can't tell you which trade-offs are worth accepting and which are not worth accepting. And throughout this pandemic, we have forgotten that follow the science has been hijacked as a slogan to mean follow the policy preferences of elite professors at universities who themselves can live lives on Zoom. I, I feel like that's what it means to me. That's what follow the science means, follow my policy preferences. That's not an appropriate slogan. Science and follow the science has failed during the pandemic, in my opinion. What, science's job, of the job of science and scientists was to articulate the trade-offs. We have, for the most part, been unable to do so. Let me just give you a few examples. Lockdowns. I think lockdowns will be debated for the next decade. And lockdowns, what it means is a broad category, including things like shelter in place to the use of military force in Australia to um, business restrictions, having um, prohibitions on business, but they're not really enforced too well. It means so many different things. Which of these strategies actually slows the spread of SARS-CoV-2? Which of these strategies benefits the community around it? Which of these strategies is sustainable, which is able to have a long-term impact on SARS-CoV-2 spread. Does it matter the conditions? Does it depend on how many cases per 100,000? Does it depend on the culture of the place? Does it depend on the way in which the lockdown policy was shaped? 
And the truth is, we were emerging from this pandemic with very little idea about whether and under what circumstances lockdowns work. And I've written about that below. I'll put that link below. And I think my thoughts are that it's unlikely to have a single answer. I mean, I think people are craving simplicity. It's unlikely that lockdowns never work under any circumstances or that they always work as we've deployed them in any circumstances. The truth is something in between. We may have deployed them inappropriately at many times in places in which they didn't do anything at all other than stifle economic activity and hinder the lives of people. There may have been a few places we deployed them and ways we deployed them that they were beneficial. It'll take a long time to tease that out, but we didn't do a good job of answering that question in real time. We didn't do a good job of running the experiments that could give us clarity masking young children. I've said over and over on this channel and in op-eds in the Atlantic, etc., that we don't really have great data on what the pros and the cons are. We've never done cluster randomized control trials for school-aged children, and yet you hear over and over how fervently people proclaim that this is known to offer a benefit and that whatever downsides exist have to be smaller than the upsides. The truth is no one knows that because no one has studied that rigorously. The job of a scientist isn't to tell you you ought to lock down. It's to say, if you lock down, you're going to have this many fewer cases, but you're going to have this consequence on the other side. If you close school, you're going to slow transmission by X, but you'll have all these long-term consequences for kids. We didn't do a good job of that. We haven't articulated those trade-offs. Instead, follow the science has become a slogan, meaning solely the policy preferences of the people who use that slogan. They claim themselves to be the scientists. I find it deeply troubling. And I think... It's, it's the first step down a dangerous road where there may someday soon be two sciences. There's the science for the people who want policy A, and there's the science for people who don't want policy A. And each group is going to say, we're following our science. But that's not science. That is the misuse of the term science. That is taking this concept that is helping you to learn about the natural world and saying that it imputes values and tells you what policies you ought to have, and that is always inappropriate. So I'm troubled by the misuse of follow the science. I'm troubled by the added dimension that in addition to using this rhetoric, everyone wants the person who says otherwise, who has different policy ideas to literally be expunged from the internet. Um, I think that's deeply troubling for a democracy. And the last thing I'll say, so many of these battles, so many of these debates it's really just about one thing, somebody's underlying policy bent. There are lots of scientists who believe that the policy ought to be, we do everything to open schools and we tolerate some degree of risk. And there are some scientists who believe we shouldn't tolerate any risk with opening schools and we should just suspend them or do them online. And if there's any risk at all, we should halt the school. Um, and that's a policy preference that is in part guided by scientific principles, but in part guided by an intuition an uncertain intuition about the unknown pros and cons of the policy. And people may legitimately disagree about that. They're not disagreeing as scientists per se, they're disagreeing as citizens, but they come to use the rhetoric and the false confidence of fragmented and conclusive science to bolster their arguments. And I think that's a deeply problematic place. The other example I'll give is this idea that if only something were done differently, we would have escaped this fate. If only we had all wore N95 masks. If only we had tested everyone every day. If only we had done this, this virus would have dissipated, vanished, been driven to extinction. I think those scenarios are quite unrealistic. They ignore the way in which respiratory viruses have evolved. They ignore the history of pandemics throughout millennia. They ignore so much of the truth about the natural world, which is that human beings, although marvelous and incredibly powerful through our technology, we are often impotent and unable to completely 
take the natural world and bend it to our wishes and desires. In many ways, we, we can make modest differences, but we can't transform the entire world, the entire natural order. So follow the science, this slogan I keep hearing, increasingly adopted, I think, to mean a particular set of policy preferences, which are, in my opinion, maximally restrictive, maximally pro-lockdown, maximally pro-endless restrictions, um, has been misused. And, and the right way to frame science is to say, you know, we do know from Bangladesh that wearing a surgical mask works in an unvaccinated population. What are the trade-offs for a vaccinated city like San Francisco right now? You've seen that there are some people in San Francisco on the news who are not complying with the mask mandate, and there are a lot of people who are complying, even gone so far as to wear cloth masks outdoors. Does that work? What are the benefits and the harms? What is the magnitude of the effect size in a city with 80% vaccination rate? Science could answer that. Science could do some simple studies and answer that. We have not, for the most part. There have been a paucity of studies that try to articulate those trade-offs, be it schools, be it asymptomatic testing, be it masking. I'm only aware of one cluster RCT and one non-cluster RCT Denmark study, which people are very upset about for other reasons. Um, not that many. And Paul Glazio and colleagues from Australia keeps a list of such randomized controlled trials of non-pharmacologic interventions. On the pharmacologic side, we did some good things. We have recovery, we have solidarity, but we have so many failures. Perhaps the bulk of Americans treated with off-protocol, unindicated interventions, such as anticoagulation, um, were done outside of randomized control trials. We couldn't learn from that. And I think the most egregious example was that Mount Sinai study that appeared in Jack, where they treated thousands of people without randomization. So we didn't learn from that. So what's my point here? My point here is that we have to always remember policy is science plus values. And values don't come from scientists, they come from everybody. And science ought to better delineate and characterize trade-offs, and we have fallen short in that. And I think to some degree we fall short because the less you articulate the trade-offs, the more you can use your bluster to justify your policy conclusion and sort of hand wave that the trade-offs would be immense and that they favor your policies. And I fear that that's part of the deep root. That's why many people tried to extinguish randomized control trials for NPIs very early on. So those are my thoughts on follow the science. Those are my thoughts on the state of the debate. And those are my thoughts on science going forward. To science to go forward legitimately, it has to be uh, a single science. We can't have two sciences. And we have to commit to giving people more information, but resolving ourselves to the fact that we are not the ultimate arbiter of policy. Until next time. I wanted to do a quick video about some of the assertions I've been hearing about what's going on on college campuses. Many people claim that the draconian policies of college campuses have got to be benefiting these kids and have got to be slowing the spread of SARS-CoV-2. And what I want to say is, you have no credible evidence that that's the case. Now, let's talk about the most draconian policy. In my opinion, the most draconian policy is Duke University. They are gone so far as to mandate outdoor masking of college kids. Now, we know at this point in the pandemic that even in an unvaccinated population, outdoor masking is probably not going to do a whole lot because outdoor spread is the lowest instance of spread for this virus. But if you take a vaccinated young population and you do outdoor masking, you really are irrational. You're really running counter to any credible science. Your policy is draconian for the sake of being draconian. If anything, that policy might cut the other way. It might actually have negative implications because kids will burn out and they'll be unwilling to do other things. And they'll view all of this as a pointless theater. But one of the claims that I have made uh, that I think is factually the case 
is that we just don't have credible evidence that the policies of many of these universities, like Stanford, Brown, and Duke, were asymptomatic young adults who have been vaccinated, are screened for SARS-CoV-2 with weekly or bi-weekly spit or nasopharyngeal testing, that that slows the spread of SARS-CoV-2. Now, put aside the goal of the policy. I think, and I have a piece out now, an op-ed and MedPage today, that we might be mistaken into thinking that right goal of the policy is to slow the spread of SARS-CoV-2. It's an endemic virus. It's inevitable. We're all going to come in contact with it. The best we can do is to harm reduce, is to lower the chances of bad outcomes when you come into contact with it. But put that aside. Let's say the goal is just to slow the spread of the virus. There is really no credible evidence that these policies, this asymptomatic screening, does slow the spread of the virus. It's plausible that that might be the case, but it isn't proven that that is the case. And it's also plausible that it might not work. It might not even slow the spread of the virus. The history of medicine is riddled with practices that someone thought was plausible that turned out not to work. And if you want a summary of those things, I'd recommend a book called Ending Medical Reversal. It's literally a summary of those topics. So what are my thoughts here? If you were a real scientist and not um, someone who merely wishes to promote this policy, but a real scientist, you'd want to study if this policy, which is costly and cumbersome, actually slows the spread of the virus. And the way you would do it is assign groups of, of college kids, either a single dormitory or some floors in a dormitory or some groups of them across many college campuses to this asymptomatic screening or not. And to ask, what is the rate of SARS-CoV-2 perhaps symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 in those communities. So symptoms leading to testing. So if you're in a control pocket where you're not getting screened asymptomatically every week, if you have a symptom, you'll get free access to testing. And if you're in a group that's getting screened asymptomatically every week, when you come down with a symptom, you'll get tested, confirmed you have SARS-CoV-2 and we'll document that as the endpoint. And I think it's plausible that this asymptomatic screening doesn't even improve that endpoint of symptomatic SARS-CoV-2. That might not even be what we want. We wish we had more power and we could power it for hospitalizations from SARS-CoV-2 or some severe outcomes or hospitalizations in the broader community. But this would be a start. And I think there's a huge pushback against doing this. That's what I find so fascinating, that many of the people who are the most ardent advocates of this asymptomatic screening, which is bizarre, these are young vaccinated people, may themselves be consulting for some of these testing companies and doing some modeling that supports the use of these products without empirical evidence that that's the case. That, in my mind, would be problematic. But the bigger, I think, silliness of this whole thing is the moment you go outside of these college campuses, no one is following any of these precautions. And if anything, they are much more lax in their precautions. And the other thing I would say is, which are the colleges that have been able to implement this? It's not going to be a state university. It's not going to be a community college. They tend to be the elite institutions with big endowments. Why? Because they have the money for this. And who are they catering to? Are they really catering to public health or are they catering to the anxieties of the parents and donors? And that is what I worry to be the case. So I guess I'm struggle with this whole issue of all the things we ought to be doing about SARS-CoV-2 in this moment, and there are many things we could do, taking a highly vaccinated cohort of young adults who are destined to come in contact with this virus over the course of the next decade, and policing their behavior to such great lengths as to ban parties, to ban indoor dining, to prevent them from spending time with more than two or three of their friends, to make them wear masks outside, to prevent them from taking a sip of a coffee in a lecture hall. These are very draconian things done upon the youngest members of society, young adults, that probably is not going to benefit anybody in the broader community and probably is just going to inconvenience and hurt these young adults. 
And if you believe that it does slow the spread of SARS-CoV-2 at the college campus, you could conduct a cluster randomized control trial to try to support that claim. Although I think the appetite for that is very low because why would a company seek to test their product in a randomized study when they can already get the market share by getting the universities to pay for it now? And that's the situation we're in. So when I see claims like we know screening asymptomatic people is of benefit, I, I puzzle with that claim because we don't know any such thing. We just don't know that to be true. And real scientists would admit that we don't know that to be true and that there are methods we could get closer to the truth and not to simply debut a costly, expensive, cumbersome test. I think I'm not the only one frustrated by this. My inbox is filling, filling with college students, graduate students, people who are clever, who realize that this seems quite absurd and they point out to other absurdities in their lives. And uh, we, we hope to take a deeper, deeper look into these issues. So, you know what to do if you like this video, like, subscribe, comment below, leave a message. I'm critical of this policy. I am skeptical of it. I want to see some evidence that it actually does something and I don't want to hear any more people assert blindly and without data that it's guaranteed to slow the spread of the virus. I don't think that's true. I can debate even if that's the goal in and of itself, but accepting that that's the goal, I wonder if this actually accomplishes that goal or if it's merely theater like outdoor masking is theater. And I think, um, you know, I'd be embarrassed to be recommending a policy of outdoor cloth masking with what we know today in 2021. I mean, that's just simply bad policy. It makes people feel frustrated and it doesn't actually solve any problems. So on that positive note, until next time. I recently got a phone call from a reporter from Europe, and this reporter asked me what my thoughts were on the state of science. What is the state of science right now? What is the state of science going forward? Will we survive COVID-19 in terms of a profession? And I was quite, quite pessimistic. I told him that the state of the science was weak, science was in shambles, and we needed a lot of work if we were going to recover for the next crisis. So why do I say that? I thought it might be useful, instructive even, for me to talk for a few minutes about what makes me come to this point of view. I guess I would say my view about this pandemic from March until the present day, actually we can go back a little bit earlier, we can go to January to the present day, gives me a lot of reasons why I'm deeply concerned about the state of our enterprise. So let's start in January. January, February, we were talking a little bit about SARS-CoV-2. I remember there was a New York Times story, it might have been, even have been in December, where they built a hospital from the ground up in Wuhan, and you watched the ingenuity of the Chinese government, how quickly they could build a hospital. But that was also a warning that things were not doing so well in that city. But in the weeks that followed, a number of pundits went on TV, and they said repeatedly, over and over, that we had nothing to worry about. They said that... Flu kills more people than COVID-19. In fact, flu had already killed more people than COVID-19. So we should be more worried about the flu than COVID-19. These are the same pundits we still hear from today. Why did they get it wrong? Of course, they got it wrong because of what Nicholas Taleb calls fat-tailed probability. That even though the risk of the event at that moment was less, there was a much higher probability of an extreme event with SARS-CoV-2 than seasonal influenza, at least in that season. And in fact, that's what happened. Then we go forward, we go into March, and what we see is there was a void in the media empire. There was a void of people commenting intelligently about the policy, and we were moving into sort of hitherto unembarked states. I mean, we had never shut down society globally, shut down travel as broadly as we did in those weeks in March. 
And what you saw in the media and you saw on social media was the rise of the science communicator. The science communicator and scientist are kind of two different things. Science communicator is somebody who at peacetime can often be quite good. There are a lot of issues that there is a strong and long-standing scientific consensus, and a science communicator can go and advocate for those issues. For instance, people who are less fortunate may have less access to good antihypertensive control. Science communicator can go push on those issues, the importance of blood pressure control. They can push on the importance of routine childhood vaccination and dispel some of the long-standing myths. Science communicator can do a good job of talking about why many of those uh, fly-by-night products don't actually improve your health, like wearing magnets on your wrist or taking some potion or something that comes from a flower or uh, grass, how those things don't have any convincing data that they work. And we saw science communicators increasingly move into SARS-CoV-2, of course, because that's where the interest was. But they were ill-suited in a few ways. One, they had not really spent a lot of time grappling with unprecedented policy decisions and thinking through the facts that sometimes you just don't know what's the right answer and you do want to facilitate rather than curtail a debate. I think early on in the pandemic, one of the egregious errors made by some of these people was the hydroxychloroquine debacle. It was a debacle in a few directions. Of course, hydroxychloroquine had some laboratory evidence of promise. It had some early, I think, unconvincing data from China, but some early uncontrolled data from China that it was administered and some people were thought to have done better than what you would have expected. Now, I tweeted, I think, in April of last year, my pretest probability that the drug worked, and it was sort of a Bayesian distribution, but it had a big spike on it, don't work at all. And I've talked in prior videos on this channel that my pretest probability any drug works for some novel purpose, whether it's a new drug or a repurposed drug, it's generally low. I have low pretest probability. That's an empirical claim. I come to that after many empirical studies looking at pretest probability. But what we saw was a politician who was incredibly divisive and people felt very strongly about in all directions. He came out in support of hydroxychloroquine. And in fact, there's a nice paper, I think, by Kesselheim and colleagues in JAMIM looking at prescribing of hydroxychloroquine after Trump said, you ought to think about using it. But what we saw in response to that was an interesting counter movement. Hydroxychloroquine wasn't something that was wrongly endorsed based on early and inconclusive data. It was increasingly something that was portrayed as poisonous, harmful, the side effects were severe, the AEs were unpredictable. And if anything, people opposed, I think, to Donald Trump exaggerated the downsides of the, of the medication. And a number of ongoing randomized controlled trials were trying to be conducted, and they suddenly found a loss of interest for two reasons. Some people were devotees. They believed that it was going to work no matter what. And other people were critics, and they thought they wouldn't even want a chance of even taking hydroxychloroquine. Boy, it's a poison after all. And so the irony there is that we were losing science already. It was slipping through our fingers. And it was slipping through our fingers, I think, because it was being politicized that we were anchoring it, hydroxychloroquine, to the fate of this person that many people dislike, particularly people in the academy. And the response wasn't sort of equipoise. It was, we got to go the other direction and be overly critical of it. And I think we saw that in a number of other junctions. I imagine sometimes in sort of a, in a counterfactual world, what might have happened had Trump been very forceful about lockdowns and shelter in place rather than been reluctant to embrace those tactics. Had he been forceful, I think you would have seen in the academy a much larger split you would have seen a lot of people in the academy become critical of lockdowns and shelter in place for a prolonged period of time. But part of the reason it reversed was that he seemed so, shall we say, not that interested in those policies or of anything critical of those policies. 
Fast forward a little bit into the summer of 2020. What happened? We had the press release results of the recovery trial. And this is another great example of, I think, how science was increasingly ripped to bits. The recovery trial was run by the Oxford investigators. It was different than a lot of other studies. They had pre-registered their statistical analysis plan. It was available on the internet. The protocol was available on the internet. It was a mega randomized control trial. And when those authors put out their press release, they did something incredible. They found dexamethasone was life-saving for people who are on the vent who required oxygen, but it was actually perhaps even detrimental in people hospitalized not requiring oxygen. They had pre-registered that subgroup and they had a statistically significant interaction coefficient, which is not what you see all the time with subgroups. In fact, you seldom see well done, pre-specified, powered subgroup analyses, but you saw it with recovery. And you could check the statistical analysis plan, you could check the protocol. And what were we doing in those days prior to it? We were playing cowboy medicine. Every, not a week went by where I didn't read some report of some doctor in some hospital throwing the kitchen sink at some patient with SARS-CoV-2. Or many hospitals that I'm aware of, many hospitals that I have colleagues who work in were telling me about protocols giving this drug or that drug off-label, off-protocol. But alas, we had a light in the darkness. We had randomized control trial data showing steroids save lives. And I went on Twitter and I said something like, you know, at this point, not only ought you do it, it would be unethical not to do it and wait for this published paper which isn't gonna change the results, but we got pushback there. And the pushback there was, well, you know, it's not wrong to wait to the results. Of course, waiting would merely result in many casualties while you wait. It was very unlikely that these Oxford trial investigators with their pre-registered statistical plan and protocol were going to get things wrong. And meanwhile, the standard of care was set based on no evidence at all, so I felt like that was sort of an absurd point of view. But again, that was science at a time of crisis. And the failure there was that many people felt compelled to comment about the recovery trial. They felt compelled to be science communicators, but they may not have had the expertise in critically evaluating randomized controlled trials in rapid fashion. I'm not sure how many times they've read protocols or statistical analysis plans, and how many times they had to think about what does it mean to do medicine by press release. In fact, that was one of the things they said. This is medicine by press release. But the problem with that is that Medicine by press release, it means something. It means a constellation where a for-profit invested company issues a press release to satisfy the Securities and Exchange Commission requirements and to avoid insider trading. And that press release is often threadbare and not reflective of the actual trial results. It's not the same thing as independent academic investigators in the throes of a pandemic pre-registering a mega randomized control trial, giving you the statistical plan and telling you a very elegant and parsimonious result with the pre-specified interaction coefficient. That was fundamentally different. And yet they couldn't tease those two apart because it was a, a little learning is a dangerous thing sort of phenomenon. The next thing that happened, vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. This put, this put science communication to the test. Why do I say that? VIT. VIT was the fearsome complication that emerged from adenoviral vector vaccines, and it is not a good thing. It was a cerebral sinus thrombosis, a mesenteric thrombotic cascade. This was runaway platelet activation driven by platelet vector 4, a pathophysiology very similar to HIT. And when I first heard about it, and surveillance systems first picked it up, I thought, this is something you gotta take seriously. Why? It wasn't just a regular AE being reported through surveillance system. It wasn't just an AE that occurs with some baseline frequency that occurs in at times. This was a hitherto unknown entity that literally has never existed aside from a few isolated idiosyncratic cases of hit without heparin exposure. But for the most part, it had never been existing in, in, in history 
in humanity. So every case of VIT was excess VIT. It wasn't, there's not some baseline rate of VIT and then you're having extra VIT. This was an entirely novel entity. But you saw in the world of science communication, particularly on social media, the immediate reaction was to discount it, was to say, well, let's put it in perspective. Let's compare it to women who take oral contraceptives. But of course, a woman taking oral contraceptive and getting a DVT and a calf vein is fundamentally different than someone getting a vaccine, a 20-year-old woman getting a vaccine and having a cerebral sinus thrombosis that may even lead to her death. And so I think our initial response to that was poor. It didn't reflect science. It reflected this sort of increasing culture war where to be a good person meant you have to be unfailingly pro-vaccine. To be a good scientist meant you could never consider anything about a vaccine that was unpleasant. And that sort of mantra superseded a rational consideration of the evidence. And I think a lot of the people playing in the science communication box were not well trained to evaluate rare adverse events emerging from these systems, passive collection systems. For it to emerge so quickly with that frequency, it had to be an unusual constellation. Had it been something usual, it wouldn't have reared its head with that frequency. It would have taken a lot longer to be detected. So I think that was a great failure of science. Myocarditis. You know, I was first turned on on myocarditis when somebody emailed me an article in April that came from the Times of Israel, or I think Jerusalem Post, talking about how Israel, which would led the way in terms of vaccination, had identified a safety signal in boys, I think between the ages of 16 and 22 at the time or something in that range of excess myocarditis. And it appeared that the signal was large and it was very likely to be vaccine related due to the timing of the event. But it was very difficult to speak publicly about that for a few weeks. It wasn't until early May, I think, that the EMA announced an ongoing investigation. And that was around the time that Steph Baral and Wes Pegden and myself wrote a article in BMJ Opinion where we made the case that although EUA, emergency use authorization, was an extremely legitimate path to get a vaccine to people very quickly for adults, we felt like we ought to reconsider the use of EUA in younger age groups, particularly children and even perhaps even young adolescents. And our argument was in part influenced by the fact that there were still unknown safety signals that loomed just outside of our reach. But in the weeks that followed, of course, we learned a lot more. We learned that myocarditis due to mRNA vaccination is real. It does occur in boys, and we're still debating the frequency. But I think what I think was one of the failures of science was, again, having that dialogue was curtailed, was made very difficult by, I think, this, this reflexive idea that thinking at all about vaccines in terms of risks and benefits and having any nuance about the right vaccine for the right person at the right age that was deemed uh, untenable, that was deemed uh, taboo uh, by a group of people who I think are science communicators and see themselves as that, but I think lack the wherewithal to really have done good science and to think about science in a very deep way. Science, of course, is not just a set of things that you believe, it's the process by which you come to believe things. So moving forward into debate, that's the next thing I'd written down here. This was, I think, the greatest failure of science throughout the entire pandemic was that we made decisions we've never made before. I mean, literally a society has never made these decisions. The decisions were of magnitude so large, you will never have these decisions again. We're never gonna close schools for a year and make a decision like that that affects millions of children in so many ways, potentially beneficial. Maybe we slowed SARS-CoV-2 spread, although I have my doubts. And in many known deleterious ways, basically, possibly crippling their upward mobility, destroying their future in many ways. We don't even know all the harms they are gonna keep trickling out. And these issues became so unable to be debated fairly. They were so heated, so polarized. And if you wanna ask yourself, 
prove to yourself that we were unable to debate these issues, here's what I'll ask you to do. Go look and see how many times CNN or 60 Minutes or PBS or Harvard or Stanford or Yale or Hopkins had a town hall where they really got people who felt very differently about these issues and had a good faith disagreement about these issues. And the answer is very few. I sought those out and I couldn't find them. These institutions that are meant to preserve a forum for robust academic dialogue, particularly in settings of uncertainty, they abdicated that responsibility because they, I fear, have become fearful of social media. They're fearful of the mob. They're fearful of what they perceive to be the majority view, and they dare not even have a debate lest they be accused of both sidesing a, a word used to mean giving false equivalence to two ideas, one of which is really bad. The problem is when you're making unprecedented decisions, you don't always know what's right and what's wrong. And sometimes you might be wrong. And the fact we were unable to tolerate debate, I think speaks deeply. The next thing I'd say is people, I've never seen it like this in the science community. When you disagree with someone, they are so incapable of focusing on the issue. They are fundamentally incapable of focusing on the issue. They only and always focus on the person making the argument. Um, or they disproportionately do that. Maybe rarely they focus on the issue. When you focus on issues, what you do is you don't spend your time dealing with an individual or talking about who they are or even focusing on their arguments. You push your own ideas agenda in your own op-eds, in your own videos, in your own podcasts, in your own scientific work. You push your ideas. And yet we increasingly saw people on Twitter, they became obsessed with John Ioannidis. They became obsessed with him, I think, in part because his, his stat article was I think fundamentally critical of the response. And, and I think his, his central, his central um, intuition was that it's very likely that in responding to this, we might do more damage or we might do some things that don't really solve the problem and are very damaging. Um, uh, but they became obsessed with that because they view it as an impediment to do these sorts of drastic things that they themselves believed in, I think. And it quickly became about him and so much about him and obsessing about him from the color of his jacket to you know, his past papers, to whether or not he's a good person, to what his political affiliations are. I suspect, if anything, he's extremely left-leaning from the totality of his work, but that was quickly lost because he appeared on a few shows that are extremely going in the other direction, and so they labeled him as a partisan. Um, and then just elaborate threads where they just went through in a condescending way his paper without acknowledging that all papers often have great insights and a few things that might have been phrased differently, a few things that are weaknesses, but that there is something that you can glean from that. And maybe with some more time, I think people might change on that. And so it became, you know, endless personal attacks and people made their whole reputation on bashing this guy who had a big reputation. And he was just one of many people, I think, who found himself on the wrong side of what the social media communicator group felt was the right policy choices. But that's not good for science, I think, because even if you disagree with some of the things he said, I think on other things, he did offer great insights. And I've interviewed him twice for maybe about four hours and perhaps someday again on my podcast. Myocarditis is part two. Part two to me is, is captured by the response to Mandrola, Tracy Beth Haug, Ali Kruger, Josh Stevenson. Um, you know, they used VARES to try to estimate the rate of myocarditis in 12 to 15 year old boys. And one of the things people kept saying to them is like, you cannot use this surveillance system in this way. It's known to be wrong. And my problem with that argument was that, you know, the, the rule, you have to understand why people say that. Why do they say that? 
And they say that because after somebody has anything happen to them, lots of other things can happen to them. And you need to separate the rate with which all those other things happen to them from the baseline rate with which you might expect to try to infer what the causal influence of that prior event was. In this case, the prior event was vaccination. But in this case, I think it's really different. That criticism was not apt for many ways. One, that troponin elevations in this age group, they don't just keep spontaneously happening. They happen for a reason. And the other reason it was not apt is that they did the thing that you're supposed to do, which is that a cardiologist vetted these reports at great detail. And the final thing about science is, is their estimate broadly compatible with other estimates? And the answer was yes, it was broadly compatible. It remains broadly compatible with Israel, Norway, Ontario province, so many places. So for you to allege that they're guilty of misinformation or polluting the scientific space, you have to do two things. One, explain the systematic failures of their paper, which why it would be biased one way or the other, which I think you've not done. You've just said that they shouldn't use the data this way without getting into the details as to why and under what circumstances one oughtn't use the data that way. And two, to show that the resulting point estimate is actually incompatible with what other estimates are, and you haven't done that either. And the real reality is so much of the motivation is just that you have a fundamentally different policy conclusion about how many shots you think this age group should get. That's fine, but be transparent about your real motives and don't turn it into a referendum on these people. I read people argue about whether or not they had the credentials to do this or not. You know, you can, you can, you can say all these things. You may score points among a faction of people who don't understand the issues, but there are a few people left, and I know they still text me, they still email me, who do understand the technical issues, and they will find that to be a specious form of argument. The last thing I would say, I've been troubled like many people about science and, and how politicized it is. Um, anyone who thinks that one political party has the right view of all the scientific facts, that just can't be right on, I mean, sure, some parties can get more things right than others. I don't discount that. And in fact, you know, I have my own feelings about that. But it's impossible for any political organization to always be right about everything. And science is, is a method to try to get closer to the truth, to admit uncertainty. So that's the point I want to make before the last point, admitting uncertainty. One of the ways in which science failed was overstating certainty. You can't overstate certainty and expect people to take you seriously. You can't have the CDC and the AAP say you ought to mask every kid two to six and the WHO say you ought not do that. And then to try to convince people that this disagreement from two really legitimate groups of people is because they're totally wrong and we're totally right and the evidence is inc incontrovertible. It cannot be that way. It cannot be that way when there's global disagreements, when different countries do things differently. The science cannot be as slam dunk as you make it out to be. If it was as slam dunk as you make it out to be, there would not be those disagreements. So you are embellishing. And when you embellish, why will anyone take you seriously? You lose all your credibility in my eyes and in the eyes of many people. People can sniff that out. Last thing I'd say, this is, I've never seen this before in science. I mean, I have been in many fierce arguments and I don't know if people have followed me, but I've been, I've been there with the mammography and the PSA and nobody liked my op-ed about when USPSTF went from grade D to C and I, I made a joke that they were popping the champagne bottles in a stat op-ed. I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying we shouldn't have the Nobel Prize. It's a, it's, a, it's a serendipitous finding. It's a misleading prize. I've been in debates on genomics. Should every person get their whole genome sequence daily? And uh, I've been in debates on cancer drugs and this, that, and the other, and on Entresto. I've been in so many debates in my career. And 
one of the things I noticed in these debates was that people do get angry with you. People do feel like, you know, in the beginning of my career was always, oh, he's too young, hasn't published enough papers, he hasn't done this, he hasn't done that. Now, of course, there's some new, you know, that then they can't say, they can't check that box up, so there's a new box, which is, you know, he's not this, he's not of that, he's not of this. I mean, there are always such things, and I'm used to such things. Um, and it doesn't surprise me that others are getting that. That's a natural human thing. But what does surprise me is the appetite for people who are supposedly smart scientists to say it isn't enough to try to rebut or counter or even drown out the views of your opponents or your, the people who disagree with you. You need to expunge the world of those views. You need to remove those posts and not let them ha be able to even tweet and not let them post their preprint and retract their preprint, whatever that means. It's a preprint. It's a work in progress. Um, retract their speech and silence their speech and delete their channel and vanish their Facebook page. That, 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 those kind of sentiments just weren't that common in the academy. But now they're overwhelming. The chorus for that is so overwhelming. And I think that's part of the reason why these universities are scared to have debates. They don't want the debate, lest somebody want to vanish the debate from the internet. And I guess I've been troubled. I've been troubled at a few times. I'm troubled by Tom Jefferson and Carl Hennigan. Um, even though I've not seen eye to eye with them on every issue this pandemic, I was troubled when their Spectator article wasn't allowed to be shared on social media. Even though it wasn't exactly how I would have written it. I'm troubled with Marty Macri's article in the Wall Street Journal, which was censored on Facebook. I'm troubled by that because this is a real newspaper. This is a real professor. And you can say all the things. And I fought with Marty before. I think people forget. I wrote a whole op-ed critical of his um, third leading cause of death paper. You can find it. It's in stats. So I've, I'm happy to, 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 to rebut him. But I never said his BMJ paper should be deleted from the internet. John had some videos removed from this channel. Uh, angry cardiologist, who's an industry insider, a pediatric cardiologist, he tweeted about the incidence of myocarditis from vaccine versus from the virus, and that was labeled misleading by Twitter, and he continues to love to show that because as time has gone on, he's been deeply vindicated. We've never had a culture of science where we were not just angry with people to be disagreed with. We've always had that from Bernie Fisher to the present day but that we wanted to remove what they said from the world, from the public record. We wanted to expunge it entirely. That is a novel cultural phenomenon, and that's deeply poisonous. So going forward, I think science is nearly doomed. I mean, I hate to say it, but you're really doomed, people. You're doomed because your institutions of higher learning don't have the courage to host debates. You're doomed because people are more likely to want to vanish your content than to allow it to persist and let history decide. And you're doomed because scientific positions and political partisan positions are so intertwined. And we have a group of people who are just shameless partisans and they believe that what science says is what they themselves say, um, although that's not the case. And the ability to tolerate uncertainty has diminished. The ability to say uh, you need to do randomized trials has gone down. Um, people say all sorts, the same old excuses. They've used these excuses for 20 years. Why you can't do a randomized controlled trial. That's not new, but it's become more vociferous, more passionate. The denial of the weakness of the evidence is louder than I've ever seen it. And so I told this reporter from Europe all these things. If we are to fix this, the fix has got to be something deep and fundamental. And if I were to call upon the people who you need to get to fix this, you need to get the deans of the universities, you need to get the presidents, you need to get the people who have the last vestige of academic authority to really lay down the law and say, 
it doesn't matter if our people say some things that you disagree with. That will always be the case with unprecedented policy choices. But we have to foster rather than stifle the debate. We can't take sides in these matters. And we have to really allow for a broad range of ideas to be put forward. Um, and if we don't do that, I fear, I fear bad things are coming. So on that positive note, this is what I told this reporter today. If you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, leave a message, comment. Uh, it's longer than most, but I hope you find it uh, reflective. And uh, this is my, my view after having been in this business for, you know, publishing for maybe 12 years now and having done a few things. Uh, and having uh, participated in scientific dialogue for a long time, I've not quite seen it like this. So, until next time. I'm back, new video. Big announcement today, Johnson & Johnson's back. And they're eager to keep their market share. They've got the second dose results back. So basically, Johnson Johnson, they did a real-world study. They find that vaccine efficacy against hospitalization from the one-dose J&J shot is something in the high 70s, low 80s ballpark. They also have an ongoing study that has read out some results. It looks like with a booster dose or second dose of the J&J shot, they enjoy near-perfect efficacy against hospitalization from SARS-CoV-2. So those are good news for J&J. But it makes me wonder about this J&J &J vaccine saga, and it makes me wonder what drug regulators are going to do, vaccine regulators and vaccine advisory committees. Here's why. About a month ago, at late August, we had Paul Sachs and colleague write an op-ed in the New York Times where they made the persuasive case, I felt, that had you received a J&J &J vaccine, you ought to get a booster. And they actually made the argument that the booster you could think about getting is an mRNA booster. At that point, Pfizer had a full... FDA approval and it could be used for this purpose and I would advise you to go read their op-ed to see their case and over the last few months we've seen over and over the government advisors Francis Collins a Surgeon General they had said hang tight for those people who got one dose of J&J &J. we're gonna get some information to you we're gonna give you a path to booster and at last we see now that J&J &J has their press release results and there is some pathway I think coming forward that that might lead to a booster but here's my question why are we so wedded to a J&J &J booster in people who got the first J&J? &J? Why aren't we thinking more like Paul Sachs? And my concern, of course, is that this company is trying to preserve their market share, which is roughly about 15 million Americans, and continue the J&J &J line in those people. But I think it is an open question as to which of these vaccines, the mRNA technology or the adenoviral vector technology, would be best suited for someone who got a J&J &J shot. Now, the thing that I want to know more than anything, more than the efficacy of the J&J &J shot number two, is the rate of, you guessed it, VIT, vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. This is the known and fearsome complication of the adenoviral vector vaccines seen with AstraZeneca, seen with Johnson & Johnson, and I want to know how high that VIT goes after dose two. That's, in fact, the only question on my mind, the rate of VIT after dose two. And so I'm really going to want to see in the weeks to come, somebody convince me that for a woman younger than the age of 50 or 55 or even 60, that it is in their best interest to get a second J&J &J slug, knowing that there might be some rate of VIT. And that rate might be higher than what we saw with dose one. And at some age, younger than 30, younger than 25, I think I'm really going to want to see very clear and convincing data that the benefits outweigh the harms. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner.
Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.